Amen. Amen. He is going to reign. He's going to rule. And there will only be one nation in eternity. And it will not be America. It will be the holy nation of the church of Jesus Christ. All of those, as a matter of fact, out of every kindred and nation and tongue and people all over the world, there at the throne of Jesus and to inhabit the earth forever in perfect paradise, perfect peace and joy and righteousness forevermore. Beautiful thought, isn't it? Until then, we need to be thankful for where we are and where God has placed us in this world. I preached last week from our text that God has actually placed every one of you into this particular body as He has saw fit by His sovereign hand of grace. He has also chosen in His divine providence and purpose for you to be born an American. And that's something to think about. Why did He do that? And I'll give you a little homework. Go back and read Psalm 67, and you'll find out why God has blessed you like He had. He's blessed you so that you can be a blessing to the nations. So that other people can know the saving work of Almighty God in Christ. I'd like you to turn with me to the book of Philippians this morning, chapter 1. The book of Philippians, chapter 1. What a time of celebration in our country today and in our church today. It's communion time. Time for us to celebrate the union that we have with Christ. And with each other as children of God. That is, that is something really special this morning. I hope you see it as special. A time when, when we celebrate the person and work of our Savior, His redemptive work, His atoning work for us. That is purchased and secured for us this gathering this morning. <laughs> So that we're not sitting in here. Now some of you may be still enemies of God today. Separated from God by your sins. But the thing about it is. The reason that the church is gathered this morning. Can happen as a result of the work of God in Christ. That he has, he has worked in redemptive history. Through his only begotten son. So that we could call upon Him, we could repent of our sins and trust in His finished work and be unified with our Creator, nothing between us, nothing separating us, but peace and harmony and reconciliation. That's all made possible by God through Christ. And so we're celebrating that union today. You have to have union with Christ before you can have communion with Christ. So if you haven't been unified today, listen to the Word of God and pray that God will be merciful to open your eyes. Let's read um, from verse 7 through 11. This is where we left off last week. Even as it is meet or fitting for me to thank this of you all, 
because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my bonds and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, ye are all partakers of my grace. For God is my record, how greatly I long after you all in the bowels of Jesus Christ. And this I say, that your love, and this I pray, that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment, that you may approve things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ, under the glory and praise of God. Let's pray together. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your name. Holy. Holy is your name. Infinitely valuable. Creator. You are the sustainer of all things in heaven and on earth. May your name today be exalted. May your name today be lifted up in our hearts, O God. May you be prized and treasured and praised today in the hearts of your children. Today I pray, Father, that you would walk and you would work among us in a special way. Lord, that you might be the glorified one and we would receive the grace and the mercy and the lavish love from your hand today. Open our eyes to see wonderful things in your word. Open our hearts to receive and apply them to our lives. If there's one today that's lost, oh God, reveal your great love and mercy through the work of your Son so that they may repent of their sins and be freed, truly freed, from the tyranny of sin in their life. For it's in Jesus' name we do pray. Amen. Last week we talked about being partners in the gospel. And we looked at the Greek word koinonia, which Paul refers to, and the way it's translated in English is fellowship or partnership, participation with. And what a blessing it was to go back and to see from verses, as we look back just to recap just a moment, verses 3 to 6, He's thankful and prayerful and joyful. And the reason that he's thankful and prayerful and joyful was because, verse 5, of this fellowship, this partnership, this sharing in the benefits of the gospel and also sharing in the work of the gospel. That is, that the, that the gospel would advance among the nations of the world so that other people could be saved. And he is also thankful in verse 6, of the fact that God is the ground and the assurance of their continuation in the faith and their continuation in this partnership with Paul in the gospel. Because he says, 
being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it in the day of Jesus Christ. And so we talked about the process of the gospel, and then we talked about the pinnacle of the gospel. The day of Jesus Christ is the day when he will return to this earth. And he will rule and reign in perfect righteousness and harmony and peace forever. And we will not be in some disembodied kind of spiritual floaty experience. No, we will have an imperishable, immortal, glorified body. Fashioned, the Bible says, like unto the Lord Jesus Christ, most glorious body. Never growing weary or old or tired or sick. And we will forever be able to perfectly praise and adore our Creator and Redeemer. Now this morning I want to talk about not the partners in the gospel, but partners in grace. So I want us to think about our comments this morning under the heading, Partners in Grace, because you can see it there in verse 7 at the end. He says, you have been with me and you are partakers of my grace or partakers in grace with me is really the literal translation of what it means you are partakers because the grace doesn't come from paul but it is the grace of god that has come to paul and to them through the hearing of the gospel mixed with faith so that they are now sharing in the benefits of the redemptive work of christ do you realize this morning what a privilege it is What gives rise to a passionate worship of Jesus when you recognize that you are a beneficiary of the redemptive work of Christ. And one of the things that has been purchased and secured that we celebrate in the Lord's Supper, if every blessing, if every gift, if everything has come from God, and in some way, even those without Christ... This morning, those of you who are lost, those of you who may not be a Christian this morning, you're still benefiting from the redemptive work of Christ because it is only by the grace and the mercy of God that you are not destroyed. You see, there is a real place to avoid and a real place to desire. The place to avoid is hell and the place to desire is heaven. And the only way to get there is to be a partaker, a sharer of the benefits and the blessings of the redemptive work of Christ that is represented by the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus Christ in our communion table. So as we take of that, I want us to be thinking about that as we look at this text together and think about being partners in grace. The very idea of grace is that it's unmerited. It's undeserved. It's unearned. It is given from no, absolutely no merit in ourselves. Have you thought about that this morning? There is nothing in you that God has seen that has caused Him or compelled Him to love you in this way. (laughs) It's just His nature. It is His overflowing joy and happiness within himself that he creates things and even after the fall has chosen and made a way for people to be redeemed and purchased back by the son's blood on the cross 
I primarily want to think about two things, and that was a little bit bigger introduction than what I had originally thought, but I want to primarily think about two things, and I know this is a quite a large text for, for me, anyways, <laughs> to unpack, but I want us to first of all think about Paul's passion, and then I want us to think about Paul's prayer, Paul's passion and his prayer. First of all, in verses 7 and 8, I want you to look at these words and see the passion of the Apostle Paul for those believers at Philippi. He says, For it is fitting for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart. See that? And then in verse 8, he calls God to record how he longs for them in the bowels of Jesus Christ. And so let's go back up to verse 7 and think about this little word, to think. The word there is the word phroneo. And what it means is to feel a certain way about someone. And that's the reason it's translated to think this about you. But it doesn't just mean to think with your mind like I, I, I think of Bill or, or Joe. But it's to think in a way about someone. It's to think in a way of concern. I think in a way that you're concerned for that individual. I wonder how he's doing. And so he says, it is, it's fitting for me to feel this way about you as I remember and recall the unique and the special fellowship that we have in the gospel as benefit, beneficiaries of the gospel together and also as partners together in the advancement and defense and confirmation of the gospel together. And so his joyfulness over his relationship with the disciples at Philippi and really for all the local churches that Paul was uh, blessed to, to, uh, to either start or to write to, he has them in his heart in a special way. And the interesting thing about it is that he just doesn't love, he just doesn't think about and feel this affection and passion for the ones who are doing good. Because he, he says, he says, even it is fitting for me to feel this of you all. And so he is thinking about every single one of those Christians in the local church. And to take us outside of our text this morning to 2 Corinthians chapter 7, if you'd look there. We find another example of this same kind of feeling and affection and passion, concern. And the reason I take you to the Corinthians is because one thing we know about the Corinthian church, they were a spiritually gifted church, but they were also had a lot of problems. <laughs> they had all kinds of problems. They had, they had disunity. They had, they had, uh, they were, their, their services, their gatherings uh, were not organized. You had people over here doing things and people over there doing things. You had immoral behavior among the Christians there. But Paul still has a love and an affection for them. He still loves them. He loves them with the love of God. And so we find it in 2 Corinthians 7, 3, as he writes here, I speak not this to condemn you, for I have said before that ye are in our hearts to die and to live together. So the reason that he's writing, he says, it's not because I want to condemn you, put you down, or hurt you in any way, but I write this to you because I love you, and I've already told you that I want to live and die with you. This is how much he loved the people of God. 
And so if you think about it, it's kind of a continuation of the thoughts that we had last Sunday morning. That we are in this unique fellowship with God, and as we are in this unique fellowship with God, we are in a unique fellowship with each other that's centered upon the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so Paul had a Christ-centered affection for his brothers and sisters. He loved them in his heart, verse 7, because they were of great value and they were of a great help to the Apostle Paul. Because he goes on to say that in verse 8, I call God to record how greatly I long after you. I'm dying to see you, he says. I want to see you. I want to know about you and how you're doing. He cares for them. And this is where we find out how old the the King James Version is because he says, in the bowels of Jesus Christ. (laughs) And that comes from the same time period where, have you ever heard the saying, I've got a gut feeling? (laughs) Well, that's where this translation comes from. Because the bowels, the intestines is the literal translation there. So what he's saying is, At the core of of who I am, I love you. I am moved with this compassion for you deep down in the core of my being. And so what it really means is, as we read it again in verse 8, I long after you with the affection of Jesus Christ. I want you to think about that. The, The... He longs for them with the very affection of Christ. How much does Christ love His church? Paul says that's the kind of love and passion and affection that I have for you. That's Paul's passion. And then he goes on to say, A prayer for these disciples. And this I pray, that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment. Paul's prayer here is for love. I want you to think about that. For love. He's talking about his passion. And then when he prays for them, what he prays is for the love of Christ, the love of God within them, to be shed abroad in their hearts through the Holy Spirit, so much so that it increases more and more. And so when we think about Paul's passion and we think about Paul's prayer, it's primarily two things that he prays for. And then he, and then the result of the two things that he prays for will be four in number. So let's look at them just briefly here before we take communion together. He prays for this love. Did you know that the love of God and the love for brothers and sisters in the church is at the core and center of what it means to be a Christian? Did Did you know that? To be a Christian is to have the disposition of the love of God in your heart. It is so central to who we are and to what we say we believe in this book. 
Love one another, John writes, for God is love. By this, John writes, shall all men know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. How will people know that you're a Christian? Oh, I pray we get this. It is not coming to church on Sunday morning. It's not. It's not. It's not coming to church on Sunday morning and sitting in a pew. It's not. The world has seen so much inside the church that simply coming and showing up to a building is not going to show them that you are a follower of Christ. The way that you represent Christ and show that you have been conformed to the image of Christ is to love your brothers and sisters in the church. That is how you do it. Because (laughs) it's not natural. It doesn't come apart from the supernatural work of God. But when God comes in and the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts, oh, that melts us down. That softens us up, and that gives us an affection, a passion for one another who has been bought by the same blood, sealed by the same Spirit, and headed to the same eternal, glorious destiny. So he prays for their love. And he prays that this love, first of all, will be an expanding love. If you look at it there in verse 9. I pray that your love may abound yet more and more. You see, in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 22, uh, Paul writes and says that the fruit of the Spirit is love. And so every person who's born of God is born of love. But what Paul wants is for this seed of the very love of Christ, the affection of Christ, to abound and to expand in our lives and in our fellowship. So we can never be satisfied with the amount of agape, self-sacrificing love for one another within the local church. But not only is it to be an expanding kind of love, it's an enlightening kind of love. If you look there in verse 9, it says, And more in knowledge and all judgment. He's talking about discernment here. Having discernment for what is excellent and right according to God and His holy word. Love that discerns is what is best and filled with understanding. True knowledge comes through knowing God and you cannot know God apart from His word. You have to know the Word of God to know God in truth. And only by knowing God in that way can you discern what is right and wrong. Can you discern what is best in relationships with your wife or your husband or your children or your church family or your co-workers or your schoolmates? Knowing the Word of God is inseparably linked here to obedience to that Word. So He just doesn't want you to grow in head knowledge and understanding and discernment. He wants you to grow in that discernment so that you apply it to your life. 
so that you live in such a way. Because remember, it is your life, Christian, that testifies to the validity of the gospel. We'll say that again. It is your life, Christian, that testifies to the validity of the gospel. I'm not talking about sinless perfection here, but what I am saying is that the life of a believer should be such that when somebody looks at you or looks at me, they say, something's different. What is it? And when that happens, then you can explain to them the gospel. And they're, they're going to be compelled to believe it because they can see the validity of it in your life being transformed from a sinner to a saint. From one who is in rebellion against God to one who loves God and the things of God. So he wants them to have this. And this leads to living out a God-entranced, God-centered life of excellence. If you look there in verse 10, that you may approve things that are excellent. And here again, this is an application kind of word. He's not just saying, yeah, that's right, or yes, that's wrong. But he's saying you approve it by acknowledging it and living it out in your life. This is talking about moral excellency. You talked about it, Donna, in your, in your, uh, in your solo, about living a moral life. Those who will rise up and live according to the Word of God and have integrity of heart and integrity of character that is lived out in the decisions and the relationships that we have in this church and in this community so that people can see and know there's a God in heaven whose arm is not short but mighty to save and powerful to transform the sinner to the saint. And so this is... a. Expanding, enlightening love. And I'm going to have to give the rest of it to you in, uh, what do you call, uh, outline form, bullet points, okay? But if you'll notice in verse, um, as a matter of fact, all of this is progressive. He prays in verse 9 for the love that it will expand and that it will uh, bring discernment so that, verse 10, so that something else will happen. So that you will approve things that are excellent. And so that you will be sincere and without offense until the day of Christ. In other words, you're going to be pure and blameless at the coming of Christ. This is kind of mysterious. But listen, can I say this? This much I want to say. That when Jesus returns, the way you've lived your Christian life is going to matter. We are saved by the grace of God. It is not any merit that we come. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. That is salvation, my friend. If you want to come today, you can come to Jesus on the basis of the finished work of Christ on the cross. You can come and be forgiven. But the way you live your life validates and confirms whether or not you're born again or not. And it's going to matter when you see Jesus. If you live your life as a Christian, nominal, discontented, unconcerned, you're going to regret it, friend, when you stand before Jesus. And that's what, that's what he says here. That you may approve the things that are excellent. You may be pure, sincere, and without offense until the day of Christ. Being filled with the fruits of righteousness. So the next step in the, in, the, in the progress is that you're filled with the fruits of righteousness. 
which are by Jesus Christ under the glory and praise of God. And what that phrase means is that you're going to be being filled. You're going to be filled as the love of God is shed abroad in your heart and it gives you understanding and discernment. And so you approve what is excellent by living a virtuous life a life of integrity, then you're going to be filled with the fruits of righteousness. In other words, you're going to be filled with the evidences of good works that abound to the glory and praise of God. Paul is always concerned with the life of his, of his brothers and sisters. Why? Because, listen to me, when I prayed a few moments ago, and I couldn't, I couldn't even take another, couldn't even utter another word when I prayed, hallowed be your name. That's what Paul knows. The way you live your Christian life is how you hallow God's name. And that is expressed in a climactic way. Listen, in the love that you have for your brothers and sisters in Christ. That's the climax. And all of it is to the glory and the praise of of Almighty God. As the deacons uh, begin to come now, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we come today so thankful, so filled with gratitude today for your work of redemption. God, Our hearts just swell with love and affection for you and for each other today. And Lord, as we approach this communion, this Lord's Supper, as we partake physically of the the bread and the fruit of the vine, I, I pray, God, that you will cleanse us from all sin. Because, Lord, we do not presume to partake in it Uh, as perfect people because we have not attained that just yet. But we partake of it today by faith, nourishing ourselves upon the promises and the benefits that was purchased and secured on that cross that we could be a sharer in the redemptive work of your shed blood and your broken body. As we take it today, I pray that you would fill our hearts with faith and joy and love for you and love for each other and compel us to love the the lost, that we may proclaim, defend, and confirm the gospel by telling it and by living it. Help us, God, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.